And so this is the restoration covenant. The restoration covenant is the finalization to the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant is to show you this is what righteousness looks like. If you want to be blessed and you want to have a relationship with God, the only way you can have a relationship with somebody is if you're loving them. We know that when people don't love you, you have broken relationships with them. And the Mosaic Covenant says the only way we can have a relationship is if you love me. But as they try to love God, they realize they can't because we're selfish. And the Mosaic Covenant just brings curses. And so then God comes in immediately after the Mosaic Covenant with the Restoration Covenant and says, I promise you, once you are worn out in your own works, and you're worn out in your own sin, and you're worn out in your own pride, in your own sense of self-accomplishment, once you're worn out and miserable, and you're experiencing the curses and the misery of your own efforts, that's when you'll be ready for me to come into your life and restore you. And on that day, I will give you a new heart, a heart that wants to obey me, a heart that can obey me, and I will bring the blessings of the land covenant in a much greater sense than just physical blessings. Because I'm not going to just give you the land of Canaan. This is where the book of Hebrews comes in and says, we have a better land, a land in heaven. That the Mosaic covenant brought promises of a physical land and physical cursings, then all the Mosaic Covenant can offer you are physical blessings. But Moses was a physical human in a physical land making a physical covenant with you that only brings physical blessings. But Jesus, he serves in a greater tabernacle, the tabernacle in heaven. And he comes from heaven. And he is the son of God. And he's not the builder, in, he's not the man in the house that the builder built. He is the builder. And when he makes a covenant, he makes an eternal spiritual covenant. Therefore, if Moses' physical covenant brings physical land, then Jesus brings you a greater land, a land in heaven. Therefore, we can boldly and confidently go to the throne of God, receiving blessings, because he is our anchor that has gone into heaven before us and slammed himself down in there and pulls us into heaven before us. And then you realize that heaven is not really the ultimate goal because in the book of Revelation, heaven comes down to earth, fulfilling Ezekiel and Zechariah's vision that the kingdom of God, the land, will cover the entire earth. And so that's the land that God's saying, that the Mosaic covenant is a taste. And you're not obedient enough to even get a taste of what I have. And when you realize how good that taste is, and you can't even reserve that, then I'll give you my son, and he'll give you the entire cake. Because the land is the entire world. It's peace on earth to those who have come to him in faith. And that's what God is promising. And so the restoration covenant is the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's pointing to. And you need to understand that, because that's the prophet's. Every single prophet begins with, you have disobeyed God, just like he knew you would. So prepare for the Assyrians and the Babylonians are coming. 
They just slap you, slap you, slap you. And then every prophet ends with the hug of the promise of the restoration covenant. The difference is they begin to take these four blessings and they start unpacking the bigger nature of it all. Because right now it just seems very literal and physical. The prophets come along and they take the restoration covenant and they say, it's so much more than that. And they, you can trust them because why are they a prophet? Because they are on the divine council of Yahweh. Remember that? They're actually in heaven on the council with God. And God says to the prophet, this is what I meant by the restoration covenant in Deuteronomy 30. Go tell the people. And they tell the people and they unpack a vision of a temple that covers the entire earth with a river that flows out of it. It goes into all the planet, even to the Dead Sea, and it brings life even to the Dead Sea. The entire world turns into a tropical forest and all the nations that are evil completely destroyed and eradicated and all the nations enter the New Jerusalem. There are no walls, there are no borders, and the Messianic king is ruling in the Israel. And then you get into Jesus and you find that the Messianic king is God and the God is literally ruling on the earth and you realize that then that's why there's a utopian society and then you get to the book of Revelation and realize that's how the kingdom of God can come down to earth because that's the new Jerusalem. And that's the seed for all that is in chapter 30. The seed for all that is in chapter 30. And that's why God says but you don't have the eyes or the ears to see and understand that yet. And that's why the disciples are like, what are you talking about, Jesus? This is crazy talk. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes down on Peter and the light bulb goes off and he gives one of the greatest speeches ever. And you're like, how did Peter get all of that? He was the ding dong who didn't understand anything that Jesus was saying for four and a half years. And Jesus even had to say, stop talking, Peter. You have no idea what you're talking about. And even then, there's cowering in fear and they're afraid. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And it's like 50 million synapses connections form in his brain. And he sees everything that God meant. And he takes chapter 30 of Deuteronomy and he unpacks it right there on the day of Pentecost. Because they didn't have the ears or the eyes to understand it until the Holy Spirit came. But it was all there. This is why you've got to understand these books. I know they're boring and I know they're dry at times. But when you realize, when we have the privilege to look back on the entire story, you realize, wow, this is really cool actually. And this isn't like some plan B that God came up with one day. This is something that he invoked from the very beginning of time. And he's been unpacking. And this is why when you really understand the Bible and all the themes, you're like, that's the greatest evidence that this was not authored by men. You guys as a family can't even agree on how to decorate your house or where to go out to eat. Let alone people on different continents from different languages and different nations and different periods of history weave a book like this together that constantly agree with each other over thousands of years. That's the fingerprint of God. And when you just take verses out of context or do this verse on this Sunday and a completely different passage on this Sunday and you don't go through the book, you don't see the fingerprint of God. And that's why reading through the Bible in a year or this is why, yes, you're wondering if we'll get through all this before you die. 
But the reality is, it's worth it. And you've got to unpack this because this is when it's like, this is cool. This is exciting. This is amazing. God is the only possible author of all this. Any questions, comments? I've been sitting here this whole time wondering, so how soon after you know, Moses tells them of his, what, three letters, how, when does he come up with this restoration covenant? covenant? Like, is it days? Yeah, the idea is okay. all in these days. Okay. Now remember, in between these, he's constantly going up the mountain, or um, not up the mountain yet, but he's constantly talking to God and the tabernacle. And so God could be giving him these pieces. And even Moses doesn't understand this. Because when you get to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, it says that the prophets investigated, searched, and longed to understand the time and the nature of Christ and how he fulfilled this stuff. And even they did not understand it. But they preached the message faithfully for you. And so it makes it very clear that Moses does even, the prophets, they don't even get understand me. Even when you get to Zechariah, Zechariah's got this beautiful vision of this new Israel. And at the end of it, Zechariah's like, I have no idea what this means. <laughs> I mean, even when he's getting the vision, he falls asleep while God is talking. And God had, the angel wakes him up and says, God's still talking. <laughs> yeah, Moses is saying this, but they don't, they don't really, they know that God is good. And they know that what God is going to do, promise he will do. And they know it's bigger than anything that they could imagine. But they don't know. So Moses, the greatest prophet that has ever lived, the prophets who unpack this stuff more than anybody, and even the disciples who are right there at the feet of Jesus, they have no idea what all this means until the Holy Spirit comes. But Peter tells us they faithfully preached the word because they knew one day God would execute this plan and people would get it. And that's important because then it's like if they can t- teach this and not fully understand it for their faithfulness to God and you one day, then that's what Peter uses in chapter 2 to call you to be faithful to God. That this isn't about just you getting it. This is about you preaching it to other people so that they can get it because ultimately we are to be a blessing to the nations. And so we're to continue this in the lives of others because there are a lot of people and a lot of... Is this not what everybody is desiring? They just are getting it in different ways. And those ways are leading to dead ends. And if you could offer them this and say, this is not the dead end. But you've got to connect all this so you can give that to them. Because the gospel is way more than Jesus dying on the cross for your sins so you can be saved. The gospel message is your king has arrived to make you a part of a new city, a new people. And the key to that city is through the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. The gospel message is not that Jesus died for you on the cross. The gospel message is that the king has arrived to give you a new community, a new city to be a part of, and that the way you get into that is through faith in Jesus Christ on the cross. He is what makes it possible for you. This is why he says, 
narrow is the gate. That's the gospel message, is the new city that you're walking into. Not that he died on the cross. The cross is a small part, a very important, absolutely essential, something that I'm willing to die for, but it is a part of the gospel. But the fullness of the gospel is the kingdom of God is finally here. And you can finally be a part of it without ever fearing exile. Because Christ on the cross and the Holy Spirit will make that possible. And that's the gospel message. And this is why we're not, first and foremost, Americans. We're not our hobbies. We're not our sports teams. We're, We're not our checking accounts. We're not any of that stuff that we've as Americans, as a church in America, we're the kingdom of God. And when you finally get this, you realize all this stuff pales in comparison to what God is offering you. The gospel message is not that Jesus died for you so you want to go to hell so you can do what you want in America. The gospel message is that he died to bring you into a new nation that's unlike any nation that you've ever been a part of. And I am American because I love Americans. And I want them to be a part of this new kingdom. But I'm not an American as in my allegiances to this country. And I'm going to become like this country. Does that make sense? That's what God is calling you to. Chapter 30, verse 11. The commandment I'm giving you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it too remote. It is not in heaven, as though must say, who will go up to heaven to get it for us and proclaim it to us that we may obey it? And it is not across the sea, as though one must say, who will cross over the other side of the sea and get it for us and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. For the thing is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your mind so that you can do it. So what God is saying here is, basically, even though they're not completely written yet, but in the last five books, I've clearly laid out who I am and what my expectations are of you. This is not something that you have to like ascend up into the heavens and climb some kind of mountain to gain knowledge or cross the sea. And this is significant because in the ancient world and even today, knowledge is earned. Most religions, knowledge is earned. It's something that you have to earn. You have to prove yourself through meditation or some kind of secret knowledge. And you have to climb the Tower of Babel and do some kind of meditation and, 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 and decipher the secrets of the stars and make all the connections. Or, or like in the Batman Begins movie, you have to climb up this mountain in China and pick this rare purple flower and bring it back in the middle of winter in order to prove your worthiness. And this is a very common theme that you see in religions. And God is saying, I came down. And I just clearly laid this out. What other God has ever done this? The laws are clear, and the requirements are clear, the consequences are clear, both positive and negative. This is not too difficult for you. And in some senses, he's also saying obeying the law is not too difficult. And there's two layers there. And to a certain degree, like, if you really understand that, well, in one degree, it's incredibly, it's totally impossible. No one can truly be righteous according to the requirements of the law. But if you understand what God is really saying is that the law never expected perfection because nobody can give that. That's why he had them build the altar and the sacrificial system. And all you really have to do is love God and pursue him. And in that sense, it is pretty simple. In that sense, 
you just really love God and you pursue him. And if you're pursuing him and trying to be obedient and when you're not, you repent and you come to him with a sacrifice and you mean it, then it's not that difficult. God will take care of the rest. And ultimately through his son, he really will take care of the rest. And so this is what he's saying is the only way you can really screw this up is if your heart really just says, I don't care. I really don't care. Verse 15, Look, I have set before you today life and prosperity on the one hand and death and disaster on the other. What I am commanding you today is to love Yahweh your God and to walk in His ways and to obey His commandments and statutes and His ordinances. Then you will live and become numerous and Yahweh your God will bless you in the land which you are about to possess. So he says, I have given you a choice. This is really what it comes down to. You can choose life and prosperity or you can choose death. I have clearly told you what it takes to get life, and I've clearly told you what will happen if you don't choose that. That's your choice today. All I'm asking you is to love God and obey Him. And that's interesting that he puts it in that order. He doesn't say, I've asked you to obey God and then love Him. He says, all I've asked is to love and obey. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be found in Christ Jesus than to trust and obey. And it's in that specific order, love, faith, then obedience. He's making that very clear, that if you truly love God, then the obedience will be possible. Not total perfection, but even repentance and animal sacrifice is obedience. However, if you turn aside and do not obey, but you are lured away to worship and serve other gods, I declare to you this very day that you will certainly perish. You will not extend you will not extend your time in the land you are crossing in the Jordan possess. So, he says, on the other hand, if you go after other gods, and that's what it really comes down to. What it really comes down to is this is not about your ability to obey or your inability to obey. This is about who are you trusting. You can either seek me, and you will not be perfect, but I am a loving, compassionate, merciful God who has made means for you to be forgiven, or you can trust in other beings and have relationships with other beings for your sense of hope. And this is where you need to understand that Deuteronomy and all the law, and even to this day, has nothing to do with obedience or not obedience, behavior or incorrect behavior. It has everything to do with the devotion to the thing that you're going to devote yourself to. You can either devote yourself to God and he will work in your life and allow you to be transformed into something that can be obedient and behave correctly and provide an atonement for when you don't. Or you can choose to love something else that might gratify your pleasures to a certain degree, but really will not bring any meaning in your life. And this is where we've kind of missed it in the church today. We've made it about being good or bad. And if all you do is focus on being a good person and not being a bad person, then you reduce Christianity down to moral behaviorism. And in that sense, you've made Christianity no different than any other religion. Every religion is about being good and bad. And there's nothing unique about Christianity anymore. And then it's impossible, because now all you're doing is focusing on your behavior. It is about who do you love and who do you follow. It's always been about relationship. And even the heart of the law 
God has not made it about good behavior and bad behavior. He's made it about loving me, which will produce obedience because you love me and you want to do the right thing, or loving another God, which will automatically take you away from God. If you love God, he can take care of that behaviorism. He will take care of your heart. He'll take care of your behaviorism. He'll take care of your motives. He'll take care of all that for you. And that's the message even to this day. It's not about behavior. It's about who do you love. Behavior is the natural outcome of who you're devoting yourself to and who you're loving. And this is why First Peter starts with, this is who you are in Christ. This is what he's given you as far as a great salvation. And if you are dwelling on Christ, then these five outcomes will naturally begin to produce hope, love, trust, growth in the word, and sincere love. And so that's all the writers, all the writers, they start with your devotion to God, and then they say obedience and behavior will naturally begin to happen. And that's the way we need to teach who God is. In some ways, when people say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, in some ways they're kind of wrong, because I know what they're trying to say, but in other ways they are right. They are right. Because it's the relationship that comes first, and then the religion will get right. But if you make it about the religion, then you've missed the relationship. And this is what he's making very clear. Verse 19, Today I invoke heaven and earth as a witness against you, and I have set life and death, blessing and curses before you. Therefore choose life, so that you and your descendants may live. I also call on you to love Yahweh your God, obey Him, and to be loyal to Him, for He gives you life and enables you to live continually in the land that Yahweh promised to give your ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I invoke all of creation as a witness to you, against you. Remember we talked about that at the very beginning of the book. He says the same thing. And the idea is that creation is always obedient to Yahweh. It's the one thing that has not disobeyed Yahweh. And so he says that thing that is always going to be here. You and I, our lifespans are minimal. The mountains, they're still there. The sky is still there. They are never, ever going away. And so they're a constant and they're always obedient. And they become a witness and a testimony against us and for in our disobedience. And then, too, as we go through the rest of the books of the Bible, you'll find, and coming out of the Exodus, he also uses nature to punish us when we violate that law. And so that's the way they become a witness. Now notice, once again, he invokes, just love me and be loyal to me. Now three times he's mentioned the Lamb. Just in this final Invocation to be obedient, he's mentioned land because that's the real heart. The only way you can ever reap the blessings of God is in the land. And that's so important to understand because when we get into the book of Joshua, we're entering into the land. And right now, God's been blessing them in the wilderness only because he's with them. But once they enter that land, that's the land now. And all the rules become, in the land there's blessing, outside the land there is no blessing. And we kind of already developed that theme in the book of Genesis and Exodus, but it's really going to get emphasized 
to the, um, as we go. And as we just came out of the curses, he made it clear that exile is the ultimate consequences for disobedience, which is a removal from the land. So that is the end of the third speech.